Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It's good to be back here. I uh, missed you guys last Sunday. I actually, last Sunday, preached a sermon uh, to the, the assembled host of Worldview Academy. It was the same sermon I'd preached here the week before. And so last Sunday morning, I, I got up, I got my, my sermon outline out, get, getting ready to preach it for a second time. I was going to fix all the mistakes I'd made the first time. And Lori saw it in my hand and said, oh, you're going to preach that again? <laughs> and I said, why, yes, I am. And uh, to my delight, I later heard her quoting it and uh, actually heard her on the phone describing the plot of the novel Dune to someone. And, and that was wonderful for me to hear her give her version of my version of the plot of a novel that she's never read was delightful. We're in Romans chapter 5, and for the last few weeks, what we've been doing is taking this uh, last part of chapter 5 apart. Starting in verse 12, going all the way through verse 21, Paul is uh, giving us an analogy between Adam and Christ, who he calls the last Adam. So the first Adam and the last Adam. In the first sermon where we looked at this, we, we looked head-on at the analogy itself. It starts in verse 12. Paul states the first half of it, and then he begins a digression. We skipped over the digression and then went down to verse 18 and got the whole analogy where he states that, that, that Adam's work led to death and Christ's work leads to life. And then in the second sermon, looking at this, we looked at the, the digression. Because immediately what Paul does is he starts talking about sin and death. Uh, Death as a consequence of sin. Now death reigned from Adam to Moses and what that means for the Mosaic law. And so we looked at that uh, in verses 13 and 14 and then also looked at verses 20 and 21 because he sort of bookends everything in between with that consideration. And now delightfully, as you look at your order of worship, we're actually dealing with a section that's all in order. We don't have to jump over anything. We're going to be looking at verses 15, 16, and 17 as they come. Essentially, Paul states his analogy. He interrupts it with a digression. He will then fully state the analogy and return to complete the digression. But before he does that, there's this section, which is a kind of qualification. So within the digression, he nests a qualification because he's making a comparison, but he doesn't want you to get the wrong idea about this. Like uh, he's comparing Adam and Christ, but if you compare everything about them, you could actually be misled about the work of Christ. And so this morning, the passage that we're looking at specifically has to deal with not the similarities, but the differences between the two. So What Paul is doing here is essentially comparing two stories, two narratives. There's the story of Adam that begins scripture. After the creation story, you have the story of Adam, his creation, his work in the garden, and his fall, and its consequences. So Paul is going back to that very first story, and he's explaining the story of Jesus, the gospel, in light of that story. So he's taking these two stories or narratives, and by comparing them, He's showing us what they have in common. He's 
pulling out doctrine from the stories. He's pulling out dogma, teachings from these stories, which is one of those things we often do. Right In verse 14, he actually says about Adam that Adam is a type of the one who was to come. He's a type of Christ. Um, in story terms, you might think of it this way. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. There are things about Adam that prefigure what Christ will be, what he will be like, what he will do, that sort of thing. So you might think of it this way. The story of Jesus serves as a sequel to the story of Adam. Here, what what Paul's doing is compressing all the narratives that come between and saying the story of Adam sets up a question that the story of Jesus answers. And it is the most important question in human history because the question raised by the fall, by sin, by the reign of death is, what can we do to be saved? Is there any solution to this, or does death have the final word? So when we derive doctrine from stories, it's important to remind ourselves of a couple of things. So, for example, we've talked about a doctrine that's derived from these stories. It's the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin connected to the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Right, so there's a gift of righteousness that we have in Jesus. To understand how that works, Paul says, well, it, it works the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to us because we were in Adam. Now, what you have to remember, though, is that the story is fuller and richer than the doctrine that is derived from it. Not to belittle the doctrine, not to say the doctrine's not important. It is. But the theological formulations that we derive from the stories don't exhaust the story. They're they're not all that's there. The painter Edward Nippers wrote an essay years ago on art and propaganda. He said there's a way that you can tell the difference between a work of art and a work of propaganda. And it has to do with the message. That with propaganda, once you have the message you don't have to keep going back to the story. You can just take that message and run with it. A good example would be Aesop's fables. When you were a kid, maybe you had to read these stories. You learned that if you ever in life encounter an angry lion on the path, before you run away, you should check to see if he has a thorn in his paw that's making him angry. Because if so, you can remove that thorn and the lion will be happy and he'll be your new friends. And then if Subsequently, you are captured by the Romans and thrown into the Colosseum. They decide to throw you to the lions. It may just happen that the lion they throw you to is your old buddy from the road, and instead of devouring you, he will come and lick your paw, and everyone witnessing this will say, thumbs up, release him, and it'll be great. And the moral of the story is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But if you go back to the story and you read it over again, you won't find more layers you won't go back and, and, and look at the descriptions that Aesop gives and think, you know, there's, there's more here. With something like Hamlet, for example, you can do exactly that. You go back, you read Hamlet, you see it performed, you'll always find new layers there. It's rich, it's densely packed. There's stuff there to learn. With the story of Scripture, it's like that. Right? Paul is going back to the story of Adam, and he's finding things there. 
that illuminate the story of Jesus, finding things that, that before that I'm not sure anyone had recognized. Without the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, no one had seen these connections before. Now he finds them. But once you've found them, you can't just leave the story on the shelf and move forward with, with merely the doctrine. Right? It all goes together. The, the, the doctrine flows from the narrative, and the narrative informs the doctrine. You can't separate these things from one another. There's a danger when we try to do that, and, and we do. People are always looking for uh, the answer to the question, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? What are the essentials of the Christian faith? Because whether you've realized it or not, uh, the Bible actually contains a lot of stuff. It's hard to, to master it all. It's actually hard to even know what all is in there. So it'd be super helpful if God could just give us bullet points. Say, look, I realize I, I wrote a lot of stuff in there. Never mind that. Just keep these three things in mind. And so we're constantly searching for that. And sometimes even our doctrine, our theology becomes that way for us. Right? The scripture is vast and, and contains so many layers. It's like, well, if I could just master uh, you know, the creeds, what's in the creeds, that would be enough. Just maybe have the, 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 the catechism, the shorter catechism, obviously, not the larger catechism. That would be enough. And then you return to Scripture and you find, oh, it's not. There's so much more there. Whenever we try to reduce the faith down to just the essentials, what we're doing, we're kind of carving out a rich bedrock and leaving just piers in place and hoping it'll be enough. We need to be immersed in the story, the narrative, not just the principles that we derive from it. So what Paul is doing here is he's overlapping these stories. He's showing us the doctrine that emerges, the connection between Adam and Christ. But at the same time, he's aware that there's a problem with this method, which is that you could take it too far. You could say, oh, all right, so in order to understand Jesus, I just need to understand Adam, and Jesus is like the mirror image of Adam. So everything Jesus, or sorry, everything Adam does, Jesus does, only in reverse. I got it now. Unfortunately, if you draw that conclusion, you will be misled about the work of Jesus and the value of that work. In other words, the analogy breaks down. Adam is like Jesus. Jesus is like Adam, but only to a point. The analogy breaks down. It must break down. In fact, Paul breaks it down. He insists on breaking it down. He says, Adam is a type of Christ, but, but the free gift is not like the trespass. And that's where our text is coming from, starting in verse 15. He's made a comparison. Adam is a type of Christ, and yet, there is a difference, a difference that you need to understand. The story of Jesus is like the story of Adam, but the story of Jesus is not bounded by the story of Adam. The work of Jesus is not defined and contained by the work of Adam. Jesus' work is bigger than that. Jesus does so much more. There's a similarity between the two, because they're both covenant actors. They both act on behalf of their people, for their people, with consequences for their people. But we should never make the mistake of thinking that the free gift is like the trespass, only in reverse. Jesus did not perform one act of obedience that balanced or canceled out the one act of disobedience of Adam. 
Jesus was much more than Adam, and he did much more. So in verse 15, Paul says, The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the trespass or the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life the one man, Jesus Christ. The free gift and the trespass are both the work of one man, but they differ dramatically. They're both works that are performed on behalf of a people. Adam on behalf of his people, Christ on behalf of his people, and yet the two works, they vary radically. In at least two respects, probably more, but at least two respects that we need to keep in mind. Uh, They differ dramatically in their effort, the amount of work necessary, how hard it was to do, in other words. And they differ dramatically in their result. So let's think about the effort involved in each of these two things first. One trespass, one sin, one act of disobedience brought death into the world. Verses 15 and 16, the fact that Adam's one act, that one sin leads to condemnation is emphasized. Not that that we also haven't sinned in, in various ways. Of course we have, and he'll deal with that in a moment. But specifically, when he talks about the condemnation of the human race, he links it to the fall. The fall of Adam. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. That's the point that he's making. That can be traced back to this one act, this one deed of Adam's. And honestly, not a very difficult one to perform. You go back and you read the story in Genesis 3, very little effort seems to have been expended in it. We don't actually have, at least in the narrative, we don't even sense that there's a a great deal of psychological effort. Now, maybe there was, and it's just not recorded for us, but we don't get a long digression in Genesis 3 about how Adam really struggled with this. And he was like, on the one hand, but on the other hand, just like she gives him the fruit and he eats it. Not a big deal. Not a lot of effort is involved, and yet the consequences are profound. By contrast, though, in verse 16, we see that the free gift follows not one trespass, but many trespasses. Many trespasses, which in the realm of Pauline understatement, this goes close to the top. The many trespasses he's referring to is just literally all of the sin, all of the trespasses, every single one of them, all of that sin, the cross comes after. Not chronologically, not historically, but in terms of uh, salvific order, right? That the cross stands over and above all of those trespasses. So the work of Christ requires much more, as Paul says, much more than the work of Adam required. Because Jesus is 
undoing, addressing, answering much more than just that one act, but everything that followed in its wake, like every single transgression that followed after it, created a a fault, a trauma, an injury to creation, to the holiness of God that had to be addressed. All of that had to be done at the cross. So the effort differs dramatically. Much more is required from Christ. Of course, it's not just the effort. It's also the result that differs dramatically. The result of Adam's sin, we're told in verse 16, was condemnation. The condemnation, the condemnation that we stand in. When we talked earlier, we saw in our lectionary reading that we are dead in our trespasses. But the gospel finds us dead in our sin. That's a state of condemnation. And that state of condemnation goes directly back to this transgression of Adam's and everything that follows after it. So Adam's sin results in condemnation and also in something else which Paul describes as the reign of death. The reign of death. We talked about that last time, that that sense that that death reigns in such a way that we take for granted that it's a natural part of life. You know, we accept it as the course of wisdom to deal with death, to make peace with death, to to kind of uh, accept it not to rage against it. That's how profoundly entrenched the reign of death is. It's only when death comes when it seems to us like it shouldn't, when it's unexpected or it happens to those who are young that that something like the not rightness of it strikes us afresh. But from Paul's point of view, all of it, all of it should, should resound with that sense of not rightness, because all of it comes from the reign of death. And the result of Christ's free gift is different. Where Adam brought condemnation, Christ brings justification. The justification the book of Romans has been proclaiming to us, where the reign of death flowed from sin, now the reign of grace begins in Christ. There's a difference, too, even doctrinally speaking, with that question of imputation that I mentioned earlier. Uh, When I say imputation, I realize that's a a word we don't really use in any other context anymore besides theology. But you might think of it more as, as like counting. To impute something to someone is to count it towards them, kind of attribute it to them. And the imputation of the sin of Adam is different from the imputation of the gift of Christ, because we deserve one and we don't deserve the other. The doctrine of original sin, the way the Bible presents our participation in Adam's sin, it it presents us as as guilty actors. Not that, that that guilt is being randomly assigned to us, but it is being rightly attributed to us. That's not the case with Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is being counted to us despite our lack of deserving. We don't deserve this. There's nothing in us that deserves it. Nothing we've done merits it. It is entirely what Paul describes here as a free gift. The way that he describes the free gift is striking. This free gift, he says, comes by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. It comes by grace, not 
by obedience, not by works. The free gift, he says in verse 15, and also again in 17, it abounds. There's an abundance implied with it. Not a stinginess, not a tight-fistedness, not that, that God from all eternity was determined to save as few as possible, but rather a, a superabundance of grace is manifest in the cross. There's a lavishness to the forgiveness that God has planned. The free gift brings justification. And justification here specifically is tied to that sense of gift. Not works at all. Justification by faith. And even the faith is not a work that we perform. All of it is part of a free gift. Well, what is the gift though? What is the gift? When we talk about the free gift that's offered in the gospel, usually we speak about that very vaguely. It's a free gift of forgiveness. It's a free gift of salvation or something like that. But in the final reference to the free gift in our passage in in verse 17, Paul actually spells it out. He calls it the free gift of righteousness. Righteousness. It is specifically the righteousness of Christ that's being given as a free gift to his people. To all those who have faith in Christ, his righteousness is given as a gift, even though it's not deserved, even though there's no merit to earn it, it's just handed over as a gift freely, in abundance. That's what the gospel promises. And that's why, even though the story of Adam illuminates so much about the story of Jesus, you've got to stop short at a certain point and realize that Jesus has done much more than Adam did. He's done much more than simply reverse what Adam did, because much more was necessary for Jesus. This message of abundant grace, the abundance of God's grace, the much more of Christ's work teaches us two things very clearly. First, the much more means that as Christians, we reign in life even now, even though we're surrounded by so much sin and death. We reign in life even now despite the fact that we're surrounded by so much evidence to the contrary. Secondly, the much more makes even the harshest realities testify to the goodness of God. So first, let's consider this. The much more means that we reign in life even now. We reign even now in the midst of so much death. The superabundance of grace means that there is more than just a future reign of Christ and his people that we have to look forward to. It's not just going to happen in the age to come, in other words, which is typically how we think of it. And we talk about reigning with Christ, being uh, fellow heirs with Christ. And for us, those words are almost entirely eschatological. Like that, that stuff's reserved for the, the end of days. But does Paul... Speak of it that way in our text? Not really. He says the rain has already begun. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, yeah, there is an eschatological component to this. There is a not yet part, but there's also an already part. There is already a sense in which this reigning has begun, this reversal of the order of death 
has begun. Right? The rain has that not yet component that uh, if you skip down to verse 21, you can see it clearly where he talks about this leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, yet, as we will see in Romans 6, Paul places a great emphasis on the reign that has begun in this life. What's happening right now, the power that exists now. We have now been freed from sin's reign by Christ. We are, if you skip ahead to Romans 6 verse 11, Paul says we are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. If you've been following along with our Grace at Work conversation, you know that we have an interesting way of interpreting Genesis 1, 27 and 28. When Adam and Eve are created, they are given a command to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. When we hear that word dominion, for us, it automatically conjures kind of an image of power. You might imagine Adam building a throne for himself in the Garden of Eden, maybe with stairs that he can ascend, and then he sits on his chair and he looks out over creation and says, you belong to me, I have dominion over you, that kind of thing. That's not how it works. The way that Adam will have dominion over creation is through cultivation. The way that he will exercise power over creation is by helping it realize its potential, by being a good caretaker, by giving it form, by shaping it, by giving of himself so that all things might flourish in the garden where he's been placed. That connection between dominion and cultivation is really important for us to understand, not only in the context of our human work, but also in the context of the sanctification that we've been called to as believers in Jesus Christ. We've been justified, and now the Spirit is working in us to conform us to the image of Christ. That's sanctification. And isn't that an act of gardening? Isn't that an act of cultivation? Like you, the believer, you're kind of like a a yard that has been set apart, but is still full of weeds. When we came home after a week out of town, uh, it was midnight. I pulled into the driveway, and it looked like we'd been gone for 20 years or so. Everything looked abandoned. There were weeds growing up through the driveway. If that was happening when we left, I totally uh, had gotten used to it and forgotten about it. This place, to me, looked untended. And oftentimes, that's what our lives look like. I believe in Jesus, we say. You know, I want to worship him, but our lives are full of weeds. They are uncultivated, right? They've been let go, basically. And we're called to exercise dominion, to reign, as it were, over this little realm of life where the Spirit works through us in order to cultivate, in order to bring order, in order to bring dominion. If I say to you something like, oh, you're meant to reign in this life through the power of Jesus Christ, I think you'd be perfectly justified in, in retorting, not just answering, but retorting. Uh, I don't feel like I'm reigning. I don't feel like I'm wielding power. I don't feel like there's a scepter in my hand. None of that seems true to me. And I get it because I feel the same way. But could it be because we don't understand what it means to reign? Could it be that for us to reign is to wear the crown? 
For us to reign is to lord it over everything that you see. Whereas for Christ to reign is to serve. To reign is to sacrifice oneself. To promote the flourishing of what one loves. We talk about uh, rewards in scripture for obedience and, and the, the, the image that is used is, is the giving of crowns, the awarding of crowns. And some of us are motivated by that image to great feats of obedience at the thought of getting bigger and bigger crowns or maybe stacking them higher and higher on your head. Unwieldy, yes, but very impressive to have a tower of crowns on your head. People who are motivated by these considerations haven't read far enough in Scripture to know the destiny of those crowns because they are all cast at the feet of Christ. The crowns that are given are not given so that we can have something to wear. The crowns that are given are given so that we can have something to give. A different understanding of reigning. If you don't feel like you're reigning in this life, it may just be that you're not pursuing sanctification. You're not cultivating your field. You're not tending your garden. You're letting it go untended. Every act of obedience, every moment of godly joy is an act of cultivation. And it's also an act of violence directed against the reign of death. How do you fight death? How do you fight sin? You fight sin obedience and you fight death by living by living with joy more than that you fight death by living without fear of death you fight death by living as if the life you've been promised will be yours and you don't make decisions based on fear you make them based on hope The much more means that we reign in life even now. Even though we're in the midst of so much death, we need to be in the midst of it now in order to reign in this way, in order to be obedient in this way. The second thing is that this assurance of grace's abundance has the power to turn even the harshest realities into a testimony of God's goodness. We've talked about this before. Uh, Sometimes people with a philosophical bent will say, aha, you're a Christian? Let me pose a question to you that is unanswerable. Explain to me the the existence of evil. Let me pose to you the, the, the problem of evil. Great question. I think the Christian explanation for the presence of evil is a pretty good one, and it's hard to account for it apart from the reality of God. I'm not saying every question is answered, but I think it's a pretty good start. And yet, and yet, there's another part of me that looks around and sees the, the harsh realities, the, the nature of evil, the terrible things that happen. And in my, my dark, shriveled, black Calvinist heart, every bad thing that happens is a little, I told you so. Right? Some of you have a you know, good angel and bad angel. I have a bad angel and a little Calvin. Whenever I see depravity, the bad angel says, yes, do that. And, and the little Calvin says, I told you, it's all depraved. I told you, this is the reality of sin. Ironically, I'm being funny, but ironically, there's some truth to this. Like there's a, a, a confirmation, in other words, 
right? The taking on board the reality of evil as a reality, as a real thing that exists and matters means you never have to pretend it's not. I never have to say to myself, it feels like evil, but I recognize there's no transcendent reality by which I could make such a judgment and it's all just socially constructed and one man's evil is another man's good and you do what you want to do and, and who am I to judge? I never need to feel that way in the presence of evil. I recognize in its presence one of the pursuers of my soul. I know how to name it, if nothing else. The abundance of grace transforms not the, the, the evil, but the perception of evil. So that even the evil testifies to the goodness of God. The results of Adam's work are evident. The results of Christ's work often seem hidden. If I said to you, go out into the world and keep a list of all the evidence you can find of the reign of sin and death, you could bring back a long and harrowing list. If I said, also, keep a second list and and, and bring back all the evidence you see of the reign of grace, the, the unconquerable light in the world today, that might be a shorter list. Some of us might come back with virtually nothing written on that one. We perceive the extent of death, in other words, much more clearly than we perceive the extent of life. We see the evidence much more clearly. But the assurance of grace, that much more, the much more of Christ's work, turns even those things that seem to be a measure of how bad the world is into a confirmation of the goodness of Christ by way of contrast. When I look at my own sin, when I'm honest, which I'm not always, but when I'm honest about it, when I'm not in denial, when I'm not telling myself that, you know, God looks at my sin differently. I know there are people who do what I do and they're condemned, but, but God, he gets that there's some circumstances and, and he cuts me some slack. When I'm not excusing myself, in other words, and I see the reality of my own sin, it's cause for hopelessness. And I find myself asking, as you do on occasion, have you, Christ, covered even this? Did you die for even this? I understand when I do minor things, perhaps these are easily atoned for, but when I commit foul transgressions that call the name of Christ into doubt, discredit, bring shame on my profession of faith. Have you died for even this? Did you atone for this? Is this covered? And as you ask the question, the voice of Christ comes back to you and says, much more, much more. Have you covered this? Jesus says, yes, and much more. We're surrounded by tragedy and death. We, over the past week, I think, uh, what a happy life I lived last Sunday. And things have happened over the course of the week. News has, has come to us of death, of horrible things that have befallen friends of ours that, that they would argue are, are worse than death. 
And I look at those things, and I look at the reality of evil, the things happening to people that I care about and I love. And it's not theoretical anymore. It's not an abstraction. We're not talking about little devils and little Calvins. Suddenly it's real, and it's, it's destroying people that I care about. And this happens to you as well. You see it destroying people. And you cry out to God and say, this, this, I understand the cross answers everything, but this, everything will be restored, even this. And the voice of Christ answers much more. Not just this, much more than this, much more than this. Ironically, even our happiest moments are not untainted. Even our joy, even our obedience is alloyed with sin and evil. At our best moments, if we think about, like, the the closest I came to being that ideal little Christian, the closest I came to a day of obedience, let alone a life of obedience, even then it wasn't perfect. Even then, there were flaws. Even then, there were shortcomings. The joy is imperfect and fleeting. I think about the best life has been, the, the, the most happiness I can imagine. And then I look forward to the future and I ask myself, will it be like this? Will it be like this? And the voice of Christ answers and says, it will be much more, much more. Ephesians 3.20, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do far more, much more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To him be glory. There is, Paul says, a power at work within us. The very fact of your justification, the very fact of your sanctification is imperfect as it is, is evidence of that power at work. And yet, that's a power we easily underestimate. The power of sin and death loom large in our eyes and in our imaginations. It takes faith to imagine that there could be a power on the other side that would be strong enough to balance that, to rival it, to equal it. Could Christ possibly be strong enough to face the power of sin and death? to equal the effects of sin and death. We call people saints if they manage to have confidence in that. If you can answer yes to that question day in and day out, despite what happens, you're a saint. You're a hero of the faith to think that the power of Jesus can match the power of sin and death. And yet, Paul says it's much more than that. The power of Christ isn't equal to the power of sin and death. 
It's much greater. Whatever you ask, he says, whatever you think, God is able to do much more than that. Much more than that. And he has done much more than that. His grace isn't stingy. It is abundant. It is overflowing. There is a superabundance of grace offered in the gospel so that you can look at the cross and know, if he did that for me, then what won't he do? If he did that for me, then what won't he do? If this is covered, then what isn't covered? If this will be made right, then what won't be? Much more will be done than we can imagine. Much more than we can ask or think. So have faith in the Lord who comprehends much more and does much more, will repair much more, and loves us much more than we can imagine. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.